What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and I have special guest, the one, the only, functional dietitian, Allie Miller. How are you, Allie? I am awesome. Thank you for having me on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for being so flexible. We had to reschedule a couple of times due to my mishaps. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But here we are. It's all oh, good. Yeah. All <laughs> so, so for anybody that doesn't know you, can you give the audience just a little bio, kind of what, what brought you into this space in the first place? Sure. So I am a registered dietitian by licensure, uh, but my background is unique in the sense that I went to a naturopathic college of medicine. So I have kind of that naturopathic approach paired with the allopathic, more conventional medical model. And then I marry the two of them with functional integrative medicine. And so the way that I practice is I'm always looking at each client, I call my patients clients, <laughs> because mm -hmm. I, you come to me at will. Uh, and I, I look at each client as an individual person, first and foremost. And I try to determine kind of as a detective of their body, what is the root causes and the whys of dysfunction within their body and addressing that from the root cause to manage and reduce symptoms for a more sustainable outcome than just kind of silencing and uh, modulating the symptom expression itself. So much beyond just slapping a Band-Aid on it. <laughs> for sure. And then I've been in the keto realm for just shy of a decade uh, when I started my uh, work uh, after my licensure in 2009, I uh, started running a physician's group that had like a Metafast clinic, essentially, a really poor quality, uh, you know, rapid weight loss program. And I said, have you guys heard about ketosis? And um, I transitioned her program into a whole food weight loss uh, approach and then um, have been using that when I went into private practice as a tool beyond weight loss for hormone management and reduction of inflammation and support for neurological conditions and all the other good things that come with, with the beauty of ketones. What made you want to like go down this path in the first place? Like were you always interested in nutrition and health from, you know, childhood or what was the trigger? Uh, no, not from childhood. <laughs> I totally grew up like standard American diet. Um, it's interesting because my mom was a nurse, but I think nurses tend to eat really terribly. Honestly, I, I hate to make that, that statement, but it's true from my personal experience. Um, and we were always like the house with the new snacks, <laughs> you know, the, whatever, like Cheeto puff, whatever things mm -hmm. and, uh, the cool house to go to. And um, it wasn't until actually I went to college and I became vegetarian and then vegan and vegetarian just meant, you know, just more cheese pizza and whatever other garbage and French fries and whatever. And then vegan, I actually had to start to learn to maybe prepare some more foods. And when I went to Bastyr, I was there as I entered as a vegan and I actually myself dealt with autoimmune disease that came on in my body, likely from the compounding factors of stress, as well as the high amount of soy and gluten in my diet. And um, I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis and leaky gut and uh, very significantly low levels of 
vitamin B12 and um, my ferritin, my ferritin levels were super low. I was anemic. And at that point, a lot of my professors were already saying like, so I understand your earth balance tub is organic, but that's not a real food. Let's talk about what a real food is. And that's when I really started to redefine my relationship with food in a totally new light of sustainability and whole foods first and kind of going through the process of what's been done to this ingredient since harvest. So, you know, you can get butter churned down the road, but you're importing this earth balance or whatever, and, and it has these hydrogenated uh, compounds and binders and fillers. And so at that point is when I also started my own personal healing journey, uh, transitioning into more of a paleo diet and then uh, ranching it a little bit tighter into uh, a higher fat, lower carb approach with a ketogenic diet. It's interesting. I've had several guests on the podcast now that were at one point vegetarian or vegan, um, like Dr. John Lemansky, Leanne yes. Vogel, and they all seem to you know, perform better initially. I think that's probably because they're just coming off of a terrible standard American diet. But then after, you know, six months to a year, they just start to notice all these deficiencies and they start to go downhill. And that's when they often gravitate towards more like a paleo or a keto approach. Yes. I mean, I still remember the first time I, I was sitting in the naturopathic clinic and they had all my blood results. And they said, okay, they handed me a handout and they're like, these are vegetarian sources of iron. <laughs> and I was like, but I just learned in biochem that there's ferric versus ferrous and this isn't bioavailable. You know, I'm like sitting here, like, here's where I am. Here's what I could do. I was like, I, I, I think I just need to like come to Jesus and eat some meat. And um, my husband that night was on a cast iron cooking. He was an organic farmer at the time and he was searing up a, a steak. Um, and I felt like a cartoon character, like levitating, <laughs> like the smoke fumes, like into the kitchen. And he, he jokes that he turned around and before he knew it, half his steak was gone. Like it was super primal, man. I just like, ah, and, and, it, and from there I never looked back. Yeah. I bet he didn't know what was going on. <laughs> He's like, what? Now I have to share with you. <laughs> Did you notice any kind of like changes pretty acutely when you, when you made that switch to going, you know, more meat? Like, did you notice, you know, like any difference in your hair or skin or anything like from that significant switch? Absolutely. And I, I first be that I was trying to kind of tread a little lightly. I had introduced at that point when I went into the steak, uh, raw egg yolks, and I was incorporating those into smoothies to get choline and B vitamins and whatnot. And um, I made peace with myself because I went into the, the vegan thing for animal rights, really, and then thought health. But then I, like I said, started to learn in school about anti-nutrients and um, some of the, the pitfalls of a vegetarian approach. Uh, but I noticed pretty immediately a significant impact on cognitive function and um, a lot less of this brain fog that I had been battling with. And I thought it was just that I was just tired and exhausted from the naturopathic college and the course load and late nights of studying. And um, it was really that I was so significantly B12 and um, iron deficient that I was dealing with really severe brain fog. And so that was the number one change. And I, I talk about in my, my upcoming book, The Anti-Anxiety Diet, how you really can't do this diet vegetarian because there's just so many mechanisms of the bioavailability and the nutrients needed for mood stability, memory, and cognitive function that come from animal products. From a, you know, belief standpoint, what did you, like, how did you change your way of thinking to be okay from like an animal rights, uh, you know, view and, and being okay with that and consuming the meats? 
Yeah, so I'm a nerd. You know, I had to I had to battle. I had, of course, watched all the propaganda <laughs> videos and whatnot. So I had to counter those. So I started watching a lot of, like I said, my husband was doing organic farming. And so I was already starting to make peace with biodynamic farming and the connectivity of like the life cycle of animals being an integral part of growing vegetables. And so that was already something I was like, oh, okay, so the chickens scratch the dirt, they eat the grubs, that creates nitrogen as they leave their feces in the soil. And I was starting to make a lot of peace with this kind of cyclical approach, which was very helpful for me emotionally, I think. And um, then I also uh, actually watched a cow get slaughtered. And that might sound super extreme, but I needed to do that um, to see that it wasn't as I guess, extreme as I had seen in the documentaries, um, you know, grass fed, good quality ranchers use these air guns and they actually like to slaughter their cows as almost a surprise. They don't do this very, you know, high intensive, like walk into the, the barn because they know that anxiety and fear within the animal creates impact on glutamine and that makes really tough meat. Mm -hmm. um, and so to see that it was a lot more at peace and um, that it was done in a, a biodynamic environment and that we could do this to respect and also taking this kind of oath of snout to tail of I'm going to make bone broth, I'm going to eat organs, I'm going to do this whole thing. That made sense to me. And it felt, again, a lot more connected ever with, I guess, nature and environment and the cycle of life than some of the plastic type ingredients that were in my prior, you know, diet that I thought was so sustainable. Absolutely. There's a, there seems to be like this constant headbutt between, you know, vegans and keto, but I think oftentimes because they just assume that keto people just eat nothing but meat, kill all these animals and just eat bacon and eggs every day. Um, right. But when you take a more, you know, interconnected, holistic symbiotic approach to what keto really should be and really focusing on the quality of the micronutrients, you know, the, the nose to tail approach to eating and consuming and using everything and doing so like in a natural, sustainable fashion for the animal, it, it really brings that full circle and you have a respect for just the whole circle of life, you know, as a whole. Um, I mean, like last night, for instance, we, we have lambs and we slaughtered one of our lambs and I was eating lamb chop last night. I didn't get any more fresh than that. But, you know, these, these lambs sure. are eating grass and just out in the pasture and just having a, having a heyday all day long. So I don't feel like that is bad. You know, I feel like that's just how life is. Right. Right. Absolutely. So what, what got you into, um, you know, taking, like you said that you had suffered from autoimmune issues yourself. Was that pretty much trying to figure out your own issues, the primary driver for you diving into this as a profession? Well, I mean, I was already in the naturopathic college, so I can't say that to be fair. Uh, I, I think that, honestly, the coursework played a contributing factor. And I think that my first experience of a panic attack was in my last year of school. And it wasn't before an exam or something we would anticipate. Uh, it, it just kind of came on out of the blue. And this was before I had transitioned my diet and it honestly wasn't until I had my daughter, she's now two, that I connected this. I had been practicing functional integrative medicine, you know, like I said, for just shy of a decade. And I had been dealing with things like adrenal fatigue and leaky gut and doing elimination diets, doing stool testing and working the microbiome. But something just really clicked in me postpartum, I believe, in my body 
about the role of HPA access and anxiety as really being like this Achilles heel, um, which can really create this perpetual, almost whack-a-mole type of driver of imbalance in the body. You know, we might address the leaky gut, but if stress and anxiety is still mismanaged, then we're going to only deal with a biome issue. And then we might take a good quality probiotic or do a gut cleanse. And if that's addressed, we might still deal with adrenal fatigue. And um, I really started to kind of knit this, this story or this hypothesis. And um, I've, I've been seeing that, that that's really what creates this big picture approach, because unfortunately, so many of us in our society and demands, we are under such superhuman levels of stress, uh, but we don't take the time to acknowledge what distress is and really look into how our body is coping with it and, and our perspective on our stressors. What do you, th this is really interesting to me because like so many people have these acute issues, but they're not actually acute at all. They're like chronic and they're a result of so many compounding factors. What are some of the things that that I mean, just kind of run us to like a hypothetical scenario. Like imagine, you know, you're having a client come in and just kind of describe a symptom and then how you would go about, you know, figuring out that what that is and then kind of reverse engineering from there. Sure. So uh, I kind of look at, like I said, each client, like I'm a detective of their body. And so in an initial consultation, I, I do a 90 minute initial consultation, very different than a 10 or a 15 minute visit with your doctor, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I often joke that when patients leave my, uh, now I have a virtual office. So I guess when they log out, <laughs> yeah. but when they leave my office, uh, that they leave knowing themselves maybe more than they entered. And um, what I do is I go through just a deep series of questions and I go in without any preconceived notion. And, and I'm just digging, 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 digging. And then at about the hour marker, I re-summarize that individual story back to them because I always feel that, you know, you've lived in your body for 30 whatever years. You're going to know if I'm over jumping on XYZ or if I'm undervaluing XYZ. So, as an example, if a, um, let's say a woman comes to me in her mid thirties and she's having, um, let's say uh, a little bit of insomnia going on, she's also noticing some hair thinning, um, and she's noticing constipation. Those could be a couple things that kind of come out within conversation. Um, you know, there's a couple different ways that I'm going to dig deeper. I'm going to, within the digestive story, inquire about bloating and distension to try to see is there some level of fermentation going on. I'm going to ask her a lot of questions about neurological health because another mode of constipation could be if there isn't that peristalsis, those neurological impulses to drive the matter and to move the gut. Uh, some of us in a state of stress tend to kind of clench or we don't get ample parasympathetic rest and digest function. So is it stress mediated? Is it nutritionally mediated. Um, and maybe nutritionally mediated means that she's low biotin, which is a B vitamin that plays a role with sleep patterns. So that could tie her insomnia. And biotin also plays a big role with hair loss. Um, and so, and biotin is manufactured by the colon. So maybe 
the root cause of her biotin is that she has some pathogen. Um, and so basically, I just kind of dig, 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 dig. And then I, I retell their story back. And then we determine for that individual, let's say that woman is postpartum, she's just carried a baby for nine months and then breastfed for a year and some change. I might start that patient with a micronutrient test um, to look at 35 different minerals, B vitamins, antioxidants, and um, other amino acids to determine what we can kind of build up in abundance uh, to, to rebuild basically or rebalance her neurotransmitter needs, maybe before I'd go into like a gut cleanse because she may be coming from a vulnerable, depleted state. And then someone else, maybe who comes to me and has a different life story with those same symptoms, I might start with a stool test because we maybe want to get right to that root versus just looking at the nutritional patterns. So, I mean, there's so many, you could present probably type A, B, C, D of what sounds like the same symptoms. And I'll probably find specific variances within them of how I would approach them differently. What if somebody doesn't have like any noticeable uh, issues, like they, they function at a high rate, but they, they want to optimize, like they, they just lack the perspective, like maybe there is a better option out there that they're just not aware of because they haven't experienced that. So what would you do? Like for me, let's just use me as an example. Um, let's say I wanted to optimize on all fronts and I, I lack perspective of you know, maybe my digestive tract could be working better. Maybe I am anxious and that's causing issues here or there. What would be like a good baseline for just full, well-rounded approach to what's just kind of learning my body and what I need to tweak and adjust? Well, I mean, I think that in that time of the digging, if you will, we'd probably come up with some trends. <laughs> like I said, you know, sometimes people are like, dang, they leave a session like, I guess I am this. Um, and not that I think that everyone has some imbalance, but we all have, like you, you acknowledge, somewhere to optimize, right? And so even people, if I'm asking them about stress, they're like, no, low to moderate in their form. And then as we're talking, they're like, oh, yeah, I do have, sometimes I can't sleep if this is going on. Or, oh, my dentist said I do grind my teeth, you know, and then it's like, boom, 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 boom. We, we dig, dig, dig. Here we go. Um, but but regardless, probably my go-to baseline assessment is, is to run that micronutrient test because that can help us to look at in an abundant sense what foods can be used to optimize performance and what areas you might be getting even borderline depletion in, uh, which could be giving us then indicators of how your liver is functioning. Or again, you know, if we see deficiency in, let's say, biotin and B12 or and vitamin K, which are all manufactured in the colon, then I'm going to say, oh, we got to look deeper into your gut bacteria. So I think a micronutrient assessment is a good place to start for people that don't have anything yelling out per se, I guess, as an entry symptom. Um, and then, you know, my book, although it's called The Anti-Anxiety Diet, it is a fantastic resource for people even looking to optimize that, that HPA access um, which we can define in a moment, but um, it, it gives you in each chapter a quiz so that you can determine of the entry points, which area is your highest need. Um, so whether you would need to look deeper into a little bit more of an elimination diet and removing inflammatory foods, because sometimes someone's superfood can be someone else's kryptonite, you mm -hmm. know? So even, even uh, a health supporting food like beef liver in some individuals may not be tolerated beca because of their immunological response. Gotcha. Gotcha. What about um, like pattern recognition? Like just in working with the clients you have, have you noticed or picked up on any 
kind of like trends or patterns amongst like, you know, population or, um, you know, sexes, male, female, what, what seems to be a common trend? And again, like I know everybody's an individual, but is it, have you noticed any pattern recognition at all? On micronutrient deficiencies or underlying yeah, just, areas just in of general. Need yeah. Under, like underlying areas of need. Like if you noticed like any specific hormonal, you know, discrepancies or just, you know, nutritional micronutrient deficiencies, um, that seem to trend over and carry over from patient to patient? Well, many women, I think a very under discussed topic for women's hormones is the low progesterone levels. And, um, you know, we talk a lot about things like estrogen dominance and, um, you know, things like xenoestrogens or synthetic estrogens that are found in our plastics and, and endocrine disrupting chemicals in our environment. Um, and for women, although, yes, some may be estrogen dominant. Um, a lot of them, because of, again, this, this HPA axis is our fight or flight regulatory system of the body. And so this stands for our hypothalamus pituitary adrenal. And so these are the three glands that in a stress mode are going to shunt all of their energy into what we call reactive versus regulatory function, or you may recall from school, like fight or flight versus mm -hmm. rest and digest. And um, unfortunately, like I said, I think society wise that that's where I'd probably go for men and women that many of us are in too much of a reactive mode versus a regulatory mode. And beyond that negatively impacting our digestive health, that can also influence our so it's rest, digest, reproduce and metabolize. And so there are many mechanisms of that parasympathetic nervous system. And for women, one of the main hormones that gets suppressed is progesterone. So many women will drop very low in progesterone and they can deal with amenorrhea, loss of cycle, or just anovulatory function where they're not uh, ovulating with their cycle. And um, it's going to be more perpetuated if they're over-exercisers, over-caffeinating, and if they're over-calorie restricting, which is sometimes the perfect, the like trifecta of <laughs> a woman that's looking to get quote-unquote healthy. And that can be their own kind of Achilles heel of driving that continued imbalance. It, it's kind of crazy. Like in working with my clients, I noticed a very common trend with, with women of just way, way going, going extreme caloric restriction for extended periods of time. And they, they, they hit a wall, like their body's going to stop responding to that caloric yes. restriction. And then it's just going to have like such a negative, you know, rebound. Um, and it, it's a sad thing for me to see because people damage their, their health long-term hormonally, metabolically. And it's like a, it's a sad truth. What would you say to, you know, a, a female, like, how, how do you, how do you approach that and say, okay, you need to eat more in order to eventually lose more because everybody just wants to, you know, cut calories to lose weight, but that's not necessarily the way to do, go about it. Right. For sure. And, and that's the thing is if we over, and I think often there's a misconception of, I, I can't tell you how many times people ask me, can I do keto if I have hypothyroid or can I do keto if I have adrenal fatigue or can I do keto if I have PCOS or, or hormone imbalance? And the dance is always, my answer is always, and especially ad adrenal has its own answer, but yes, you can do keto, but you can't do keto and prolonged fasting and you can't do keto and substantial calorie restriction because it's the impact on 
for instance, like our reverse T3 with our thyroid, um, leptin is a hormone that plays a huge role with satiety. And, and leptin is what I give a lot of uh, attribution of the keto high. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, so often we come into the, the world, especially if you're coming from a standard American diet and we have body fat to lose um, from being leptin resistant. And that kind of pairs with like our insulin resistance. And then as we start to use fat as primary fuel, we start to get these leptin surges. That's where we get great satiety or satisfaction. That's where we um, feel like we could pick up a stranger. <laughs> we just feel awesome um, and we feel super grounded. And we have leptin receptors in our hypothalamus, the part of the brain that regulates our um, hunger and satiety, but also regulates our circadian rhythm, so our sleep cycle, and tells the body when it's safe to go into the restorative versus just reactive mode. Um, we also have leptin receptors on our ovaries and on our thyroid and in other areas of the body. But if you go from leptin sensitivity to prolonged uh high fat, low carb paired with calorie restriction and high emotional stress or even emotional stress demand, we start to get leptin depleted. And what happens when we get leptin depleted is our body starts to put breaks on our metabolism and our body starts to put blockades on our sexual hormone balance. And so that's a big indicator. If you have loss of cycle, if you uh, have uh, thyroid concerns, we really need to think of how we can maintain optimal leptin levels. And, and that's often something I'll have to do with those type A women clients is run their blood leptin and use that data to catapult the discussion of how we're in starvation mode. And then we have to work to kind of heal the body and nourish the body to rebound and create that balance. But to be clear, you don't have to necessarily break a ketogenic state. You definitely will need to focus on more calories. And for some individuals like women that are cycling, I will use strategic carb cycling uh, post ovulation and days one and two of their cycle because leptin is insulinogenic. So you do get a little bit of a rebound, especially if a woman is looking for that hormone balance. And that's where we would consider the use of carbohydrates in a strategic cycling approach. Have you noticed that this is very, very interesting to me because this is basically the definition of what competitors are going through post competition. Um, so have you noticed any specific benefit to, you know, titrating calories up more slowly while keeping it ketogenic? Or do you notice more of a benefit from just uh, you know, pumping in a lot of calories all at once. Is there like a, a trend that you recommend? Well, especially with that kind of example of that type of woman, you have to titrate slowly, otherwise they're going to freak out. Um, yeah, <laughs> because, <I agree>. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. Um, and they're like, what? You want me to what? Um, but yes, and, and that's where I, I really believe that food as medicine is a double-edged sword, right? It, it's about removing the inflammatory foods and the inf- the high glycemic carbs uh, and also restoring and creating a balance of abundance. And so I like to be strategic with functional foods so that they still feel like they're in the driver's seat of their body. So we'll be um, doing things like golden bone broth where I want them to, instead of just drinking bone broth, I want you to, with your Himalayan salt, I want you to add a tablespoon of ghee and a little bit of turmeric. And then we might even add 
further into that, some coconut oil or MCT. Um, I want you to, and so we kind of craft with, with functional approaches so they feel empowered. I'm not just saying add more calories. I'm, I'm giving them a what and a why. And so they understand that they're tonifying their body. We also do a lot of vitamin C um, in that population that's under a stress and it would work for post post-workout as well or post-performance um, because our cortisol, um, you know, vitamin C is predominantly stored in the adrenal glands. And so repleting vitamin C after times of high stress output, whether it's physiological or mental, is extremely important as well. So we use a lot of um, bioflavonoids from like citrus rind um, in a lot of my recipes. And so we'll do like uh, orange creamsicle fat bombs. And I don't use any non-caloric sweeteners. Um, so we're just using like orange zest, the peel essentially of the orange um, with high fat and um, using um, potentially even like some chopped rosemary or something like that. Um, and so, so working with, I think, structure and function helps when you're working into abundance. And then, you know, just giving good timestamps of reassessment is, is also really helpful. A lot of my clients come to me, it's not their first rodeo, they're already data nerds, and they're really looking to kind of quote unquote biohack is the new term, um, but really solve and optimize their body's performance. It's amazing to me that some people find this to be like a hassle. Like I love looking at different foods and nutrients and kind of tweaking and adjusting the ratios and, and adding or subtracting to really optimize. I mean, it's like a game. I mean, how cool is that, that you can pick and choose certain foods and micronutrients to really just make a, you know, an astounding effect on your health. I mean, that, that to me is just awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. What, what have you, you mentioned a couple of things that I want to kind of dig into, um, vitamin C for one. So you predominantly use, you know, citrus and just kind of, um, you know, the, like the, the peel and stuff like that. You don't supplement, you know, with a, a vitamin or anything. I do as well. And so especially functionally low. Um, so I like to use foods as a foundational tool and an ongoing tool. And so I have different like gelatin recipes where also um, I, I call them adrenal rehab gummies. <laughs> and um, so these do use like a buffered vitamin C powder in them in addition to the rind um, and coconut water. And so they're a good kind of electrolyte rebounder as well as that gelatin then to heal leaky gut and the vitamin C bioflavonoids from the citrus as well as the buffered sea powder. And when we look at a buffered form, it's often going to be more tolerated per bowel tolerance because mm -hmm. vitamin, vitamin C itself can have a, a, a stool softening impact. So it can be favorable for maybe that first client we were talking about, right? Um, she might want a little bit of that movement, but um, the buffered is going to allow us to get into the three, five gram uh, dosage to really get that restorative effect. Are there any other supplements that you tend to gravitate towards? I mean, I know you, you go more for the the foods, um, but have you found anything else that you tend to gravitate towards with regards to supplementation? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I do have a, a supplement line, naturally nourished supplement line. And so I'm a huge fan of functional nutrients. And I mean, it really depends on the condition and the entry point, but some of the kind of top tools that I use. One, when we're talking about kind of this HPA axis, it's called Calm and Clear. And it has a blend of B vitamins with methylcobalamin, so methylated B12. It purposefully does not have methylfolate in there because there's many people that with MTHFR are very sensitive to methylfolate and don't tolerate. So I usually dose that strategically independent. Um, but the Calm and Clear has B vitamins and it has L-theanine. 
-hmm. L-theanine is a modulator for our neurotransmitters. So it helps with the alpha waves of our brain, which are what are seen during concentration, uh, focus, meditation, um, also within our REM cycles of sleep. There's also phosphatidylserine in this formula, and that helps to modulate excess cortisol peaks. So it brings down excess cortisol without completely depleting it. So you can use it in a state of adrenal burnout or excessive adrenal output, and then a blend of adaptogen herbs and nervines. And so it's this very nutritive, supportive formula for neurotransmitter balance, stress resilience. And that's probably one of my kind of first lines of defense. I do adrenal testing. I look at cortisol values with patients and I do neurotransmitter testing and I'll often start them on calm and clear or my adaptogen boost preemptively just to say, let's just get some support and some bubble wrap, if you will, um, you know, before we go deep into the rabbit hole, if you will. Right, right, absolutely. <clears throat> um, another thing you mentioned that I wanted to touch on was, was your sweeteners. You use no artificial sweeteners. Uh, you said no natural sweeteners too, right? No, yeah, no, no non-caloric sweeteners. So you know, I, whether what a return. I mean, my, my big thing is. Uh, I just did a post yesterday on a keto um, avocado brownie and I made them with four dates, dun, 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 call the keto police, you know, um, but uh, four dates blended with an eighth cup of warm water uh, and it makes like this paste essentially. And, and it's a 12 brownie recipe, which has a half cup of fat in it. So it uses quarter cup of ghee, quarter cup of coconut oil, three egg yolks, one whole egg, um, almond flour, an avocado and a half, you know, macro wise, still very beautiful. And um, of course, cacao powder. And my whole idea is when we bring in non-nutritive sweeteners, whether they are aspartame to erythritol to monk fruit to stevia, non-nutritive sweeteners create this false perception of what sweet is. There's an artificial amount of sweetness in our perception, and that creates this cephalic response in the body, which can create insulin release and drive us to go hypoglycemic. Um, that can also drive a little bit more insulin resistance. And um, then there's the, so there's some physiological, and I mean, we've been saying for decades, diet soda causes obesity. Why? You know, is it the behavior? Is it, is it because they're getting a Big Mac with their diet soda? Who knows? But we're starting to see that, that there are these kind of Pavlov's dog influences of the taste or perception of sweet, especially excessive sweet, um, and how the body physiologically responds. And then I think emotionally, it doesn't allow us to channel savory. And I always feel as a keto practitioner that my biggest win is when a client says to me, like, oh my gosh, I had a Marcona almond and it was so sweet. Or, you know, I ate a macadamia nut and I never thought that nuts were sweet until, you know, this last month, I've really started to wake up that part of my once standard American diet, you know, totally zapped palate. Um, and it's a process. And I think there's good, better, best in the sweetener world. Um, but I, I don't include them with intention and purpose for that reason. I, I totally agree with you. I think there's there's so much to be said for there's, there's no free lunch with anything in life, really, but yeah, especially with yeah. nutrition. I mean, people take in these copious amounts of artificial sweeteners simply because it says zero calories on the label. Uh, even if it doesn't have an impact on blood glucose, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not still spiking your insulin. Um, and you can't really right. test insulin at home as easily as blood glucose, so people just think they can get away with it. Um, but I've recently cut out all sweeteners completely, and in doing that, I just, like you said, I, I'm much more in tune with what flavor actually is. 
um, and you don't crave the sweeteners anymore. And I used to keep it pretty minimal. Like I would just have sweetener in my coffee. And, and since just cutting that out completely, like you just totally lose the desire for sweeteners in the first place. Oh, absolutely. What about people that are, I mean, carnivores are a, a, a craze right now. So what about people that are pretty much hitting their macros with a carnivore approach, but getting in very, very little uh, nutrient diversity? It's pretty much just coming from three staple options. Yeah. So, so that is one of the biggest pros of the carnivore approach is that palate recalibration, if you will. Right. So that like reset to savory, I think is one of the coolest parts about the keto carnivore. And, um, also one of the other benefits, I'll start with the good and then I'll talk about (laughs) where we can go with it. But one of the other benefits is if doing it right again, with that kind of like snout to tail, getting a good amount of uh, glycine, getting a good amount of proline and some of these underutilized amino acids, um, which we'll get in like our bone broth, our gelatin, um, getting good bioavailable nutrients in our organs, which actually have a lot of antioxidants like coenzyme Q10 and you know bioavailable Bs and, and a lot of mineral density. It can be a very nourishing diet. It can be a great palate reset. And it can also help with kind of further sterilizing the microbiome. If you're in a state of dysbiosis, a lot of people will say they don't tolerate vegetables. And that can be for one of two reasons. One can be that they're responding to the anti-nutrients in the plants. So it could be the lectins. It could be the um, other um, phytates and compounds that are in vegetables, right? Because they can't fight or or run away from us. They're going to have these anti-nutrients in their structure. So if someone has severe leaky gut, they're going to do better with that keto carnivore. And that could be a big reason. If they have leaky gut, they have damaged epithelial lining, their GI tract is going to respond negatively to vegetables. And then the other element is if they're in a state of dysbiosis, whether it's bacterial or yeast overgrowth, they are further, they may have gotten a good run with keto at being 30 grams of carbs or whatnot. And then they may have layered on a FODMAP approach where maybe they pulled out fermentable keto-friendly foods, like maybe they pulled out asparagus and onions and garlic and avocado, um, and they got a little better, but then keto carnivore, they felt even better. Well, it's because we're not getting a lot of prebiotic fibers or things for the gut microbiome to kind of latch on to, if you will. And so I think that it can be a good tool. Um, What I like to suggest is when you're reintroducing foods, um, you know, be strategic of, for instance, maybe when you're going keto carnivore, I would highly suggest doing that during a time when you take berberine root. Um, and so berberine is an awesome compound that has antimicrobial, antifungal, and antiviral properties. And that can really help to facilitate like plowing your microbiome. And then before you transition out of keto carnivore, I would suggest doing my probiotic challenge where for three-day increments, you increase by 15 billion colony forming units and see how you tolerate probiotics in a very clean um, delivery of a 50-50 blend of bifido and lacto strains. And if you tolerate and improve with the reintroduction, start getting higher dose probiotics 
for about two week baseline and then start to bring those foods in. So you have favorable fermentation. Um, and so you can do a little bit of a gut cleanse during your keto carnivore to get sustainable outcomes and then re-inoculate the gut when it's in a less fermentable state uh, preemptively and then start to bring in those foods and you'll probably have better tolerance. So it's best to kind of cycle it. So more so like if you're going to use carnivore, use it as a as a cleanse almost uh, and kind of cycle it back and forth. I, I d- Yeah, I do think of it in that sense. And then if it's more of the leaky gut side of things, you would want to consider using higher amounts of like L-glutamine. So I have a a GI lining support powder, which has L-glutamine, DGL, and um, aloe. And so it's very anti-inflammatory, oopy-goopy. And you may high dose that during the keto carnivore along with copious amounts of bone broth and gelatin. And then you may be less reactive to the lectins, for instance. So those are kind of the two mechanisms that I look at functionally, either biome imbalance or leaky gut as the drivers of intolerance, quote unquote, of of vegetables. And then the final thing you may consider is taking a good plant-based enzyme um, that has like the hemicellulose and the things that break down those fibers, as well as ox bile and HCL, um, and taking that when you try to reintroduce these foods. And I think tolerating vegetables is an indication of restoration. And I do find for sustainable outcomes, although there are, yes, some indigenous cultures that have done just a a fully animal only diet, that unfortunately in our environment of today's, you know, 6 billion pounds of toxins in our environment and whatnot, I think that there is benefit to having more fibers to support detox. I think there is benefit to having plant-based phytocompounds and antioxidants um, when we're dealing with things like EMF exposure and the toxic impact on our, our day-to-day function, having things like dandelion greens and bitters and alkaloid compounds from plants, I find to be a big, important piece of, a, of an optimal diet for sure. So it's kind of, it kind of mirrors on the opposite of the spectrum, but still mirrors, uh, you know, what we had mentioned earlier about people that had gone vegetarian or vegan, they noticed a lot of improvements initially, but then as that goes on, they they may start to pick up on deficiencies. They may have the same could possibly be said about carnivore, whereas they, they feel great initially. They remove all those lectins and inflammatories, but then notice they're deficient in some way or another. For sure. I, I think it's totally, yeah, that's a great chicken and egg connection there, right? And, and it could be the lectins and the dysbiosis that perpetuates the imbalance in the, in the vegan, right? And the vice versa. So I think that's a great point. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, what about... Like what, what, what does your diet look like? What, what is, what do you practice yourself? Um, maybe what I ate yesterday or <laughs> what's best. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just mean, shoot from the hip. What, what did you have like, yesterday? So, um, let's see yesterday. Uh, so, uh, my daughter, my two year old's been reading green eggs and ham. So <laughs> my husband made us green eggs and bacon. Um, <laughs> so we had, uh, eggs with heavy, uh, whipping cream, uh, scrambled. Uh, we had sauteed some kale in, uh, bacon grease with, um, uh, some garlic and then did, um, the scrambled eggs and that with, uh, I think I had three slices of bacon, um, from my butcher box. Um, we usually try to buy things from there or our farmer's market, um, all about definitely quality proteins for sure. Um, so I had that, uh, yesterday, probably around like 10 AM. And prior to that, I just had a a cup of coffee with some coconut oil and ghee and some uh, CBD oil in that. And um, let's see, I didn't eat then from 10 or 11, whenever that breakfast was until the evening. I'm trying to think of if I had any snacks. I don't think so. I may have occasionally some nuts. Um, I kind of eat like bookends, generally speaking. 
mm-hmm. um, especially when I'm in clinic, because I know that when I'm seeing seven to eight patients a day, my digestive function is not even <laughs> halfway turned on. Um, and I, I, I acknowledge that. And so I'll eat a pretty caloric breakfast and then a pretty heavy caloric evening. So def- definitely different than like a 16-8 intermittent fasting. Um, I leave my, my midday to just focus on my work performance and I might take like an F-bomb. I might take, again, some kind of clean, high-octane fuel, but something that's very energy dense in the middle of the day. And then um, last night evening, I had a half of a uh, rotisserie chicken. We actually ate out. Um, It was a half of a rotisserie chicken, and I had probably like four of the green beans that were served with it and all of the Brussels sprouts. I subbed the mashed potatoes for Brussels sprouts, of course, um, and a glass of Pinot Noir, and that was my uh, day. And, oh, we did make – keto uh chocolate almond butter cups and so it was almond butter with almond flour coconut flour and mct um, as the filling and then uh 85 uh, dark chocolate and i did have one of those in the evening so i had to taste what i was making <laughs> oh of course of course i go to that side. <laughs> yeah and my da- my daughter and i fought for the dark meat in my chicken <laughs> oh dark meat's the best i can't even eat the white meat hardly i, I have to gravitate towards the dark do you yeah. put much of an emphasis on like the macronutrients? I know we're, we've been talking about the micronutrients, but do you put much of an emphasis on what ratios you're hitting there? For sure. And I think that, um, so, you know, 70 to 85% fat um, predominantly, but when someone is looking for a lot of weight loss, so I have all ends of the spectrum of people that are working at an optimal weight or people that are looking for body fat burn. I always like to just say loud enough that you don't have to be so fat aggressive. I think there's a misconceived notion of if you're in keto, you can't gain weight. Um, and I think you'd probably laugh at that too, working with people. Uh, I mean, I have women seriously that are like, Oh, but I'm eating at 85% fat. And I'm like, girlfriend, you're eating 3000 calories and your metabolic rate is 1200 and you're just walking like that's not going to work for you. <laughs> Can I go to the um, free lunch scenario? <laughs> yeah, right. And so I think we can't chase macros either. We have to understand that when we have body fat to lose, you can probably be closer to like a, a 65 to 70% fat in your macros and still be making ketones if you're at a calorie restriction. And that person's different than the first woman we were talking about who probably needs 80 plus percent fat in her macros and to focus on fueling amply, you know, so it's all individualized. But but yes, I mean, I, I definitely look at macros and I think that tracking to create awareness. Um, I'm always looking at using more food journaling and downloading how my digestive functions, downloading how I slept, how my energy was, how my mood stability was. So we can look at trends within that client on how their diet strategy is influencing those outcomes beyond the ever fluctuating number on the scale, which can fluctuate with water weight and so many other variables. And then we do a, a bioimpedance analysis as well when, when we really want to look at composition change. On average, do you notice more of your clients consuming in excess or in a deficit? I think more in a deficit. Um, I think probably that has to do with the fact that, honestly, I'm a cash practice. So when people come to me, they've already been doing X, Y, Z. Um, you know what I mean? They're, they're kind of, like I said, it's not their first rodeo. They're not entering into like, what is mm-hmm. <laughs> paleo? What is keto? They've already li- been listening to my podcast. They've been trying and doing. So most of them are like over doing it or over restricting. Um, but like I said, there are a couple um, that I see definitely. And I think more in some of uh, other keto groups 
where they come in the misconceived notion that as long as I'm eating predominantly fat, I should be burning fat, right? And and they're the ones that are doing a little bit of excess sometimes. Gotcha. gotcha. I mean, people that are eating literally, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know, occasional, but I don't think that really appropriate to eat an entire package of bacon is optimal. <laughs> you know, it's like, get some balance in there and um, distribution for sure. I totally agree with you on that one, for sure. What do you <laughs> notice with regards to... Um, you know, people that like what, what, what the, between the sexes, like male and female, do you notice any patterns there in your practice? So, well, men often, as, as I was talking, like with the hormone thing, men often are less to acknowledge the role of stress, but men's hormones play such a role as well. And we're talking about now this concept of andropause, right? Which is essentially menopause, menopause in men. Um, seems andro, andropause, meaning that basically they're starting to see estrogen dominance um, and they're starting to see drops in testosterone. And, and this can happen in a guy that has excess body fat and is using fat as fuel um, because they're actually going to metabolize more of their adipocytes or their fat cells. And our fat cells in their nature are estrogenic. So I see estrogen dominance in men more than is talked about, I feel. And that's a really important thing to, to dig a little deeper into. So those guys often need to bring in something like um, my uh, detox support, which will have calcium D-gluconate or dim methionine, which helps the body to metabolize excess estrogen. Um, because often when they're using fat as fuel, again, the, those estrogen deposits can then be just kind of distributed and can throw off body balance. And then we can see drops in testosterone with cortisol peaks. So a totally separate mechanism. If an individual is under high chronic stress, again, whether they're like, hey, I'm, I'm loving it, I'm getting adrenaline surge, I'm, I'm peaking in my career, they still may be running on too high of cortisol and that can suppress their testosterone expression. Um, and so we can see beyond things like sexual dysfunction, we can see sleep pattern issues, we can see um, what I call incredible Hulk mode, <laughs> where we have this irritability and this short fuse and um, short temperament. And um, those can play hindering influences on our metabolism, on our blood pressure, our blood sugar, distress to the adrenals and mood, as well as body composition. And so I think that the, the men hormone game is super important as well in connecting that cortisol, stress, anxiety, and um, estrogen part in the equation is, is important to discuss. Do you implement, um, like what, what do you do to kind of optimize for sleep? Just I'm assuming you put pretty big emphasis on sleep. For sure. And, um, you know, beyond sleep, even just getting into like parasympathetic state especially post something like an intensive exercise. So I work a lot with breath. Um, I see a lot of good outcomes with Dr. Andrew Wild's 478 breath, which is in for four, holding for seven, and then um, exhaling with a whooshing sound, like whoosh, using your mouth and your cheeks and whooshing for eight. So you're actually outputting a two to one of, of what you're inhaling. And I will have my women or men post exercisers 
um, do that for 10 cycles as a post-workout recovery, either with their stretching regimen or after, because what we want to do is shut down that sympathetic nervous system and go into that parasympathetic state. We don't want to then take that adrenaline and match it up getting into rush hour traffic and, and just driving, driving, driving on that chasing a, a tiger <laughs> type mentality. Um, so that's a really important technique that I also will use in what I call sleep hygiene. Um, and so sleep hygiene is kind of just this ritual that adults can use just like we do for babies and toddlers as far as like what, I mean, my daughter will tell you now, she's like, time to take my probiotic, <laughs> time to brush my teeth. Like she, she has just like a boom, 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 boom sleep pattern. And, and that's what gets her to sleep through the night. And I think the same thing with adults, you know, time to foam roll my shoulders, time to maybe oil pull, time to do my five minutes of gratitude. Lights should be out for an hour before. And, and the big impact of, of lights, um, I just did an episode on kind of finding that rhythm of our ancestors with whole body health. And artificial light exposure is a huge thing that's throwing off our circadian rhythm. And, you know, melatonin levels have are not able to elevate in the brain when we're under high blue light exposure. So our screens really can throw off our melatonin and melatonin is also made from serotonin. So there is this definite neurotransmitter stress connection from burnout. There is environmental, and I think there's also habitual that all needs to be taken into account. But sleep is just the number one. Uh, there was a study that called um, insomnia a carcinogen. How crazy is that? So as an actual driver to cancer, um, as an independent variable. And, and I think there's so many different disease pathologies that we could attribute insomnia or, or lack of restorative sleep. Do you track your sleep like with like the aura ring or anything like that? I don't. <laughs> you know why? Um, I'm like way back on the like, um, you know, like go back to the yogis that were biohackers. <laughs> like yeah. less technology is more. I don't wear a Fitbit. I'm like very like, you know, put my feet in the mud, <laughs> listen to my body. Um, the, the most like hacking I get for sleep is I will um, occasionally take a, a sleep support formula that has nervine herbs and melatonin if I know I'm under high stress um, and or uh, CBD oil. So I will use those as kind of um, adjuvants, if you will, to to the lifestyle. But I'm not a I'm not a tracker in, in many ways <laughs> for those reasons. I like to disconnect and like be more intuitive, I suppose. No, no, that, that's that's hugely important as well. Um, yeah. I, I always get like really groggy with the melatonin. I never tried the CBD oil though. Maybe that's where I should go. Yeah. You know, so, um, a lot of people report that and it's interesting because, um, CBD, you know, being derived from cannabis, um, it, it does not have any of the, if, if you're looking at just pure CBD, um, cannabidiol, it does not have any psychoactive component. That's all going to be derived from the THC compound. And um, we're learning so much, you know, when we started talking about uh, so much of my, my work is in the autonomic nervous system. And that's you know, the premise of the autonomic nervous system comprises that sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. So our, our fight or flight and rest and digest but also our enteric nervous system, and that is the gut nervous system. And so acknowledging the gut as the second brain of the body. And we started to kind of have that conversation about a decade ago, but we're finally starting to understand 
what are these cannabinoid receptors doing all throughout our immunological system? And how do they respond? And, and we have cannabinoid activity from foods. Um, in fact, breast milk is very high in CBD um, and potentially because it's an, an anti-anxiolytic, meaning an anti-anxiety driver, um, potentially also because it helps to maintain ample hunger. Um, so it's kind of a survival piece of the puzzle. Um, but we see that our CBD1 and CBD, CB, excuse me, CB1 and CB2 receptors have immunological and inflammatory modulating effects. And so there's a lot of cool, we're just hitting the, the, the tip of the iceberg on, on what that compound can do in the body. But, um, I've heard people say they feel less quote unquote stony from CBD than melatonin. They get that big brain fog thing, balloon head with the melatonin. And, and I, I've heard less of that with the CBD. Yeah, there's just there's a stigma around, you know, CBD. Well, I don't know anything about it. I've never, I've never partaken in, you know, marijuana or cannabis or really dove into that industry. And I haven't really dove into CBD either, but it's kind of definitely gaining traction now. But it makes yeah. sense, like all the, you know, receptors that you're talking about. That, to me, seems like a more promising route than, than using just supplemental melatonin. Right, right. Absolutely. What, uh, what is one thing, this, this is a big question here, so get ready. What is, what is one thing that you believe to be true five years ago in your practice that you no longer or have just totally switched and done away at 180 on excluding the the vegan to keto because we already kind of dove into that frequency of eating that's an easy one for me um because i was i'm a certified diabetes educator as well which is one of my conventional you know licensure elements and um i mean I at first was very enlightened by the idea that, oh, whole wheat pasta actually can increase glycemic in index beyond white pasta and the role of gliadin and all of that. That was my a decade ago realization, aha, I think. And then this last five years is the frequency factor of eating because I think within my uh, like diabetic training and watching with sliding insulin scales, obviously, as you probably are familiar with, the solution of low blood sugar is food. <laughs> Not that you're over-medicated, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's always this idea of, right, what's your... You're 15, 15. So you take your 15 grams of carbs, you measure your blood sugar 15 minutes later and make sure you're able to bring it back up. And I, I knew that and I was using a lower glycemic diet, like 90 grams of carbs, bringing them down to 60, bringing them down to keto and adjusting medications. But for some reason, I wasn't able to break up with the entrenchment of eat every three to four hours, um, even if fat adapted. I didn't, I didn't make that transition. And until I really started delving into intermittent fasting and, um, you know, the, the work of uh, so many in the industry, Dr. Jason Fung and um, hearing Jimmy Moore talk about it more and more and, and, and then digging into the pathophysiology. I, I think that's the one thing that I would like red marker etch, um, you know, don't eat because of a clock. And I don't know if you know your training history, that's something I think that we were all kind of entrenched in is like you eat at, at 7am, noon, three, seven, you know, it's just boom, boom, boom. Um, but I think being more intuitive and listening to your body and allowing the, the principles of autophagy and allowing the body to get in that rested mode to then have the stress of digestive function compartmentalized and, and giving the body space for restoration is so, so important. I could not agree with you more. That, that's probably one of my top, top ones as well over the past five years. I mean, with, with my background as a bodybuilder, it was just entrenched, you know, eat every two and a half to three hours or else you're going to yes. just have all this muscle wasting effect. And that couldn't be farther from the truth, especially with the ketogenic protocol. 
And now, I mean, I'll eat once, sometimes twice a day, and that's it. Yeah. People that snack, even if they're on a ketogenic diet, that's a huge, um, that puts them at a big disadvantage. And people don't realize that they look totally at, uh, you know, total macros throughout the course of a 24 hour period. But yes. focusing on when you consume those macros and kind of trying to perfect and optimize the timing around what your activity levels are, just productivity from a productivity standpoint, that is, that is a very easy to manipulate variable that adds so much more optimization to your day. Yeah. And I think also that release of less stress, like just keep it simple, man, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. right. Like have two nourishing meals and you're good. Um, and I think that that helps too, because Hey, you've done meal planning, you know, coming up with five times a day is a little exhausting. <laughs> to oh, keep yeah, that my, my, my meal planning has gotten much easier for clients. I, I for sure. Good. Yeah. Well, there's literally like 500 more questions I have for you. So we're probably going to have to do a round two on this podcast. But right. uh, where can people go to find out more about you? So everything is at AllieMillerRD.com. So it's spelled like it sounds, just A-L-I-M-I-L-L-E-R-R-D.com. And I have all of my eBooks, like my Beat the Bloat Candida and Dysbiosis Cleanse and my 10-Day Detox and my Eat Fat Get Skinny book and my newly released Anti-Anxiety Diet book, which that will be available in all bookstores. And um, then you can also find me on social media at AllieMillerRD. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it has been a pleasure. I've learned a ton. I'm going to get a micronutrient test now as a result All of right. this conversation. So, Hey, we can review it on your next episode. <laughs> that hey, that would be fun. Great to me. I'm all for it. Ali, awesome. it's been a pleasure and uh, we'll, we'll be in touch for sure. Thank you. My pleasure. Happy to do it. Take care. <laughs>